So we're going to start here on the top of Kuf Yud Gimel and Aleph by the Mishnah. The Mishnah says, Kushrim Dli Bepiskia, Velo Bechevil. One can tie a bucket. The bucket here we're speaking about is a bucket used to draw water. So they would usually tie a rope to this bucket in order to draw the water from the well, from the cistern. So you're allowed to do that with a Piskia which is a belt of sorts, of a lobechevel, but not with a rope. Fear being that if you tie it with a rope, you're going to leave it there, because that is the natural place for the rope to be, and if you tie it on, you're not going to remove it afterwards. On the other hand, if you use an item of clothing, you use something that has other utility, or that you'd be apt to take off, then we're less worried, because then you're only putting it on temporarily, and you're going to take it off. Rabbi Yehuda, Matir. Rabbi Yehuda says it's totally fine. Klal, Amar Rabbi Yehuda. Any kesher that is not permanent, you are not chayav for. The question of what Rabbi Yehuda is addressing here and how that relates to the Mishnah, the Gemara will discuss in one second. Which rope are we talking about here? If we're talking about a normal rope, Rabbi Yehuda matir. Rabbi Yehuda would say it's mutar in order to tie a regular rope to a bucket on Shabbat. That's a permanent knot. Nobody's going to allow that, including Rabbi Yehuda. We know that his statement at the end of Mishnah restricts that. Ella chevel degardi. Talking about the rope of the weaver, thread of the weaver, something that is more expensive than regular rope, something that will be utilized by the weaver for something else, and therefore he's apt again to remove it and not leave it there. The memra. From that, it sounds like the Rabbanan are goes there by a weaver's rope, atu, because of regular rope. They agree that the weaver's rope is not in itself or inherently problematic. They just say it's going to get mixed up with regular rope. If we allow people to put on the rope of the weaver, they're going to think that they can also put on regular rope. Rabbi Huta Savar, Lokazrinan, and Rabbi Huta differentiates. It says you can't put on regular rope, you can put on the rope of the weaver. Firaminu, we have a brighter that seems to indicate the opposite, which is Chevel Delish Nifsak. You have a rope for the water bucket that has severed, that has ripped. Lo Yehei Koshro, Elo Onvo. Don't tie it back together. You should just loop it back together. If you tie it in the middle, again, you're dealing with rope here, you're dealing with the water bucket. If you're going to tie the two pieces of the rope back together, it's going to be a permanent notch. You're going to leave it there. So rather, what you should do is make it into a loop, which will undo itself. It's not a knot, like a bow, and that'll be fine. Rabbi Yudomer, Korech Alav Punda Opiskia, can wrap around it a hollow belt or some sort of a fixing mechanism. Uvaj Lo Yen Venom. As long as you don't loop it or make a bow from it. Here it seems to be that Rabbi Huda's shita is against his shita in our Mishnah. In our Mishnah, Rabbi Huda says, don't worry about putting on a weaver's rope onto the bucket, because that's a weaver's rope. And he doesn't worry that you're going to get mixed up with a regular rope. On the other end, over here, he says, don't loop it, don't make it into a bow. The assumption here is because you'll get mixed up with tying a regular knot. If we allow you to put on a bow or loop it, then you're going to go and tie a knot there. So over here, Rabbi Yudah is worried. Over there, Rabbi Yudah is not worried. Same thing with the Rabbanan. The Rabbanan and our Mishnah are worried about the rope of the weaver, and they say, don't use it because you get confused with the regular rope. Over here, they say, go ahead and make the loop, make the bow, and they don't worry about you getting confused with a... Regular not. When it says, Lukashu, that's not a problem. Chevel bechevel michlaf. Ropes get confused. Aniva bikshira lo michlafa. A bow, a loop, will not get mixed up with a knot. When you're talking about ropes, it's hard to differentiate. It's hard to see the difference between the weaver's rope and the regular rope. People are going to just assume if you put on the weaver's rope, you can put on a regular rope. They're not going to be discerning enough to differentiate between them. On the other hand, everybody knows the difference between a bow and a knot. Every time you tie your shoelaces, you know that. When there's a bow there, you can undo it. When it's knotted, you can't undo it. It's difficult to undo. People see the clear differentiation between them, and they're not going to confuse them. So that's how we explain their abundant of our Mishnah, who are worried about the ropes getting mixed up. Whereas in the Brayta that we quoted, they're not worried about the looping, the bow getting mixed up with a knot. The Rabbi Huda, the Rabbi Huda, lo kasho. The Rabbi Huda's position is also not problematic. In the Brayta, the problem is not that you're going to get mixed up between a bow or a loop and kshira. Ella, aniva gufa kshirahi. A bow, according to Rabbi Huda, is a knot. It is considered to be tying, according to him. We had a similar question in the position... So we had that similar question within the position of 
Rabbi Meir in the beginning of the Perek, which is Rabbi Meir says anything that can be untied with one hand is not considered a Kesher or Gemara asks on Rabbi Meir's position, what is Rabbi Meir concerned about? Is he concerned about the ability just to untie it with one hand? Or is he concerned with the ability of how tight the knot is? And the Gemara said the nafkamina would be aniva, would be a bow. You can untie it with one hand, but yet it can fasten in a secure and tight way. And therefore it would be a kesheshel kayama, according to him. The Gemara leaves that as a teku. Over here, Rabbi Huda seems to have to be of the position that an aniva is something that could be left there for long. Yes, you can untie it. Yes, it can be untied. But it could stay for a long duration. And therefore it's a din of kesher or kesheshel kayama. We do hold that a bow is okay. We hold in general that as long as it's not a double knot. If you don't double knot the bow, then it's considered to be okay. Amar Rabbi Ava, Amar Rabbi Chia, Amar Rabbi Yochanan. Mesorat Shas changes the girsa to Rabbi Chia and Rabbi Yochanan. Our Gemaras have Amar Rabbi Ava, Amar Rabbi Chia, Barashi, Amar Rav. Mevi Adam Chevel Mitoch Beito, Vikoshroba Para, Obayivus. A person can bring a rope from within their house, tie one end to the cow, and the other end to the trough, basically a leash. Eitve Ravacha Aricha Dehava Ravacha Bar Papa. So Ravacha, the long one, who is Ravacha Bar Papa, asked the Rabbi Ava, Chevel Shibi Ivus, Bepara. If you have rope that's tied to the trough, you can tie it to the cow. Shibi the rope that's on the cow, Koshrobe Ivus, you can tie it to the trough. Ravaj Lo Yavi Chevel Mitoch Beto, as long as you don't bring a rope from your house, Vikshor Bepara Uberivus, and you'll tie it to the cow and to the trough. So clear in the second bright that we're quoting, the problem is, we know that when you bring out a rope and you tie one end and then the other end, your intention most likely is to leave one of the two ends in place. If you're putting on a leash for the cow, you have two options. You can leave the rope attached to the cow. And every time you need to tie the cow up, you'll tie it to the trough or the other way around. You can leave the rope tied to the trough. And every time you need to tie the cow up, you'll bring him to the trough and you'll tie him up over there. So in that case, one of the two knots will remain permanent. In the case where one of the sides is already tied, we'll allow you to tie the other side because the side that's already tied is the permanent side. So the non-permanent side is the one that you're going to put on and off now, so that's fine. What we won't allow you to do is bring out a rope from your house and tie one to the para and one to the ibus, because one of those two you're most likely going to leave there permanently. So that's the brighter. The question is now, based on what we heard from either Rav or Rabbi Yochanan before, who says you can bring out the rope from your house and tie it to both sides, which seems to be a stira with this brayto. So then Gemara says, uh, it says no problem, that's not a stira. Over there in the brayto, we're done by regular rope. When we, Rabbi Yochanan, or Rav, who brought that memra, they were talking about a weaver's rope, which is similar to what we suggested in our Mishnah now, which is something you're not going to leave there permanently. So even if you tie both sides, we're not worried about permanence of this rope because it's going to be released. Why is it going to be released? Because it has other utility. Nobody's going to leave this rope here. It's worth more somewhere else, and they're going to come and release it. It's going to be released because the person's always going to take it off. It's a temporary solution. Hevogadi is a paradigm for temporary solution, something that has more value or utility somewhere else, and so we know you're going to release it after a time. I'm going to do a Mishmuel. The utensils of a weaver, mutar the tautalan bishabbat. One can carry them around on Shabbat. Weavers, kelim, you would assume are problematic because of muks, things that are used by the weaver, and they're muksa, so you shouldn't be able to carry them around. Yet we have a statement here from Yudah Mishmuel that says that the weaver's utensils, you can carry them around on Shabbat. By minei mirav So they asked the rav Yudah, the upper beam and the lower beam, what is the din? He said to them, in, lav, yes, no. It was weak in his hands, meaning that sometimes he answered yes, sometimes no. It was clear that he didn't have a grasp on this halacha with regards to the Kovid Elyon and Kovid Atachton. Kovid Elyon and Kovid Atachton, depending on which of the looms that you're speaking about, Earlier it sent out pictures of these looms. The woman's loom, which was a upright loom, the Kovita Elyon is the top crossbar, and the Kovita Tachton is the bottom crossbar. The top crossbar has the sheti, the strings of the warp on it, and the bottom bar is where you roll up the ariga. Once you've weaved, you roll it onto it. One is the feeder for the strings of the warp, and the other one is once you've woven the arev, the woof, through it, then you tighten it, and then you roll it up so that you roll the weave onto the lower bar. They're basically holding up the strings of the warp, one on the top, one on the bottom. That's the kovita elion, kovita tachton, it's a large beam. The same would be true in a footloom, it's just that one would be at the far end, kovita elion will be at the far end, and the kovita tachton will be in front of the weave as he's sitting and pushing the pedals, 
he'll twist the koveid at tachtonet in front of him. That'll pull the weave towards him. And again, the feeding of the sheti will be on the other side, the far end of the foot loom. And that will feed the sheti into the foot loom. It's either, they're called elyon and tachton because of an upright loom. So that's top and bottom. In a foot loom, there'll be elyon and tachton, but really it's the far and the close one. But they're functioning in the same way. There are big pieces of wood, specific pieces of wood. And they would seem to be designated specifically for the usage or utility of the loom. Once you have that, you have something called klisham lachtodi isur. That's what Rashi terms it over here. The easy way to deal with this is to say not only is it klisham lachtodi isur, but it's also, right, moksam achmat kisarom kis. Which is that the value of the object is so high or so much to the particular usage that you would never use it for an alternative usage. It's designated for that primary purpose. And it would be crime to take it away from there because you would be diminishing the value of the object. It's so expensive over there. We spoke about this in the past that you need to use a camera to smash a nut. You wouldn't do that because the camera is just worth too much money. You would never pick it up for that reason. The camera is used for its designated purpose and not for alternative purposes. That makes it muksa machmach kisarun kis. Over here, Rashi writes in both cases that it will be klishimlachto li suer. That klish machtol yisur is mutter the gufo ule mikomo. Rabbi agrees that a klish machtol yisur, a kli, a utensil, its primary purpose is for yisur. You're allowed to use it when you utilize it for something that is utilizing the object itself, a hammer, which normally is used for yisur. You're allowed to take the hammer and smash nuts with the hammer. And so that's the classic case of klish machtol yisur that you're allowed to use for sort of gufo. So over here, it would seem that Rashi claims that it's just Klishim Lachtol Yisur. Why should that make a difference? In terms of Klishim Lachtol Yisur, you still should be able to use it for Tzarek Kufol. The Rabbi Kiva Eger actually notes this point in Rashi, and he points you to the Tosfot on Kufchav Bet, Amud Bet, and Kufchav Gimel Amud Aleph. Over there, Tosafot says, even within Klishim Lachtol Yisur, there are differences in terms of primary and tertiary Utilization. Sometimes when you have an object whose primary utility is so important and so significant that even Rabbi Huda will agree that to use it for some malacha grua, as he calls it, for some small type of work, that would still be problematic. Tzarek Kufo is only mutar when the Tzarek Kufo is measured or in some sort of relationship to the primary utilization of the object. It creates, in a sense, this equivalent of what Mahmoud Chitzeron Kis is, but he doesn't do it because of the monetary value, because of the uniqueness of the object, but rather in its relative utilization. Primary utility is so far away from the secondary or tertiary utilization that we're going to say don't do it, because that's not called Tzarek Gufo anymore. Tzarek Kufo has to have some balance between what you're going to use it now for versus what you normally use it for. So that's maybe what Rashi is referring to over here, the COVID Elyon, COVID Atachton. What are you possibly going to use this for that would have, in relationship to using it on the loom, that would have any consideration or any balance between them? And that's probably what Rashi is referring to over here. So it's a type, I would call it a Muksa Mahmat Chesarun Kis. We're not talking about Chesarun Kis, we're just talking about relative Utilization. Itmar, Amar of Nachman, Amar Shmuel, Klei Kivai, Mutar Letal Tlam B'Shapat, you're allowed to carry them on Shabbat, and not Buxa, Afilu, Kovid Elyon, V'Kovid Atachton. Even the upper beam and the lower beam. Avaloet Amudim. What you can't carry are the Amudim. Now the Amudim, this is talking about an upright loom, the woman's loom. And those uprights, they get planted into the ground. They're the uprights. They hold the Kovid Elyon and the Kovid Atachton together. They basically hold the whole loom together. They are the frame of the loom, these two uprights, one on each side. So those amudim you can't move. Amalei Rovler of Nachman. Rovler says to Rav Nachman, Maishna amudim delo. What's the problem with the amudim? If you're allowing them to move the Kovid Elyon and Kovid Atachton, how could you not let them move the amudim? avid gumot gumot. If it's because when you remove them from the ground, you're going to leave holes in the ground. They're planted in the ground, so when you remove them, they're going to be holes in the ground that are exposed from where they are planted. Do you think that's the problem? They happen by themselves. It's not like you're making a hole, you just remove it and now there's a hole there. It's not. We have a Mishnah. Someone who buries turnips and radishes underneath the vines of the vineyard. If a part of the leaves are exposed, you don't worry about 
לא משום כלאיים, ולא משום שביעית, ולא משום מעשר. You don't have to worry about any of these items because you're not really planting them. If you were planting them, you would have submerged them entirely in the ground. What you're doing is storing them there. That's why you left the leaves exposed. That's why there's no problem for kilayim, there's no problem of shvi'it, there's no problem of ma'aser. It's not like you're planting them in a vineyard. It's not like you're planting on shvi'it. It's not like you've taken them out and now replanted them, so now you have to take off ma'aser again. Which is what we're focused on over here. You're allowed to pick them up on Shabbat. Why are you allowed to pick them up on Shabbat? Because the leaves are exposed. Since the leaves are exposed, you can grab the leaf and pull the radish up, pull the turnip up. Even though when you pull them out of the ground, you're going to end up moving dirt that's covering them right now. Nevertheless, since you can get a hold of the item without touching the dirt, and when you pull it up, the dirt falls away from it, that is permissible. That's not a problem of muksa. So we see you're allowed to pull them out of the ground, even though you're going to leave a hole behind. In terms of the leaves sticking out, it's not so important to our Gemara over here, but in other places, Rashi and Tosafot disagree about why the leaves are sticking out. Whether it's only because of Shabbat you need the leaves sticking out, or the leaves sticking out has impact in terms of the Filan Shvit and Maser. Is it the fact that the leaves are sticking out the way I explained it before? That's why it's considered to be Shemur? Or the first three are not problematic because you're simply storing them there and not planting them there? You need the leaves sticking out only for the Muksa side of it. It's Machil Kedvashim Tosavot in other places. Just explaining it the simplest way that I want to note it because I explained it one way. I just want you to be aware that there is another way to explain it. So Mar says, no, 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 that's okay. In the field, when you pull the items out of storage and there's a hole left behind, you're just going to leave the hole. That's in the field. Here you're in the house. The loom is found in the house. When you pull the uprights out of the ground in the house, you're going to have two holes left in your house. There, there it's more likely you're going to come and fill them in or flat them out. You don't want holes left in the middle of your house. You're going to fill those in. And that's a problem on Shabbat of Boneh. On Shabbat, to flatten out the floor, that would be a problem of Boneh in the house, problem of Harisha or the Tikkun in the field. By the fields, we don't assume that you're going to go fill them in on Shabbat because we made this a storage area. You know there's a hole there. There's no necessity to fill them in on Shabbat. In the house, you're much more compelled to fill them in because it's your house and you're going to be there. You're going to be present over the Shabbat and that's the problem. So the problem is not a muksa problem. It's not a problem that you can't lift up the amudim because the muksa, the problem is simply because of what's left behind after you pulled them out. So Rabbi Yochanan asked of Rabbi Yehuda, When it comes to the weaver's loom, upper beam and the lower beam, You can't carry them. Matam. says, what's the reason? The fish ain't italin. Because they're not carried. So what type of answer is that? He says, can you carry them on Shabbat? He says, no. He says, why can't you carry them on Shabbat? Because they're not carried. The Rashi explains here, Even on a weekday, people don't carry them around because they're so heavy. Therefore, their designation is specifically for this utility, and people will not use them for something else. Based on that, now we're back to, again, whether you call this whether you call this we're back to a point where the utility is designated for this primary purpose, and people are not going to use it for alternative purposes. Once you have that, on Shabbat it becomes muksa, and you can't move it around. So here we have a disagreement. We have another position here where Rabbi Yochanan is querying, and the answer is that you may not carry the COVID Elyon and Tachton, unlike what we saw in the previous memorial. Okay, now the next Mishnah. You can fold up your clothes even four or five times over Shabbat. The qualification is that you can put them back together if you need them again. If you want to wear them again that day, you can fold them up and then wear them. So in order to preserve them between the times that you're wearing them, you're allowed to fold them up in between. You can make the beds on Friday night in order to be prepared for Shabbat itself. You can't make the beds on Shabbat because that's making them ready for Motzei Shabbat. That's preparing preparing on Shabbat for something that is after Shabbat. With regards to the making of the beds here on Shabbat, there is a dispensation if people pass by those beds or the rooms are going to be visible and leaving the beds unkempt would be unpleasant on Shabbat. One can make the beds because that enhances the atmosphere of Shabbat. Even though they won't be utilized again till after Shabbat. Nevertheless, since they have value to enhancing the Shabbat, one can make those beds on Shabbat morning, even though they will not be used again until 
Motzei Shabbat, or if they napped in the afternoon, they can make them after they nap, because if people pass by, or if they see the room, or if someone's in the room, it would be unpleasant to see the beds in that such a manner, that would be mutar on Shabbat. Shmuel says you can fold your clothes on Yom Kippur, and you can make the beds on Yom Kippur, in order to prepare for Shabbat. So if Yom Kippur falls out on Arab Shabbat, and today we can't have that, it can never fall out on Arab Shabbat today, but if it did fall out on Erev Shabbat, then could prepare from Yom Kippur for Shabbat. The implications of what Rabbi Shmuel is stating, and we'll get to this much more in detail in the Gemara and Beta, is that Shabbat has a higher Kedusha than Yom Kippurim. Because of that, you can prepare on Yom Kippur for Shabbat. Bechelvei Shabbat krevim Yom Kippurim. And the Chalavim, the fats from the Karbanot on Shabbat, can be brought on Yom Kippur. Since again, Shabbat is more Chamur, is more Kadosh than Yom Kippurim. Fats that are over over from Shabbat to Motzei Shabbat. And a Motzei Shabbat is Yom Kippur. Again, today we can't have... Yom Kippur fall out on Motzei Shabbat. But if it did fall out on Motzei Shabbat, he says you can take the fats from Shabbat and put them on the Mizbeach on Yom Kippurim. Avalosha Yom Kippurim b'Shabbat. The opposite is not true. Because Yom Kippur is a lower level of Kedusha. Therefore, you can't take the fats from Yom Kippur that fell out on Erev Shabbat and put them onto the Mizbeach on Shabbat. V'kiva Omer, Losha Shabbat Krivim B'Yom Kippurim, V'losha Yom Kippurim Krivim B'Shabbat. They're independent of each other. One may not prepare for the other. Yom Kippur, everything has to be done on Yom Kippur itself for Yom Kippur. And on Shabbat, everything has to be done on Shabbat for Shabbat. You cannot prepare from one to the other. That's the position of Rabbi Akiva. Amai Debei Rabbi Now we're going to have a massive qualification of what we said in our Mishnah. Mishnah seems to say that you could fold clothing. As Rashi notes over here, that after they've been laundered, they start to soften up. And if you fold them, they maintain their crispness, maintain their look. We know that if you just throw clothing around, they get creases in them. They don't look as good. So if you fold them, they're able to maintain a certain amount of crispness and a certain amount of smoothness. So you're allowed to fold them. So now the Umar brings a massive qualification of our Mishnah, which is, Lo shano el The first thing is, if you fold, it can only be one person that's folding. If you're using two people to fold, that's more of a, I call it professional fold. That's more folding than we're willing to allow on Shabbat. If it's two people, no. Even with one person, we're only talking about new clothing. If it's older clothing, no. So with the newer clothing, as Rashi points out, they are able to maintain their shape or their form much better than older clothing. They crease less. And therefore, the folding is not such a significant type of event. On the other hand, when it comes to older clothing, folding of them is much more significant because they crease much faster. And therefore, the folding is, as Rashi says, a bigger tikkun. That's the next qualification. Beyond that, the Gemara says... Even with new clothes, only talking about those that are white. When it's white clothing, you're allowed to fold it, because by white, it has some impact, but not a tremendous impact. Of all bitzvuyim, when you're talking about colored bigadim, low. By colored bigadim, we also don't allow you to do it, because, again, so as she points out, kipulan mitaknan. Folding happens to make them nice and smooth and has a bigger impact than it does on the white clothing. So in order to utilize this heter of folding on Shabbat, the Gemara just qualified it, said it can only be done by one person. It can only be done with new white clothing. So that's your limitation about this folding. As far as the folding that's mentioned here in the Mishnah, it seems to be that this folding is a more of like a pressing type of folding rather than the simple folding. If that's the case, then what we do today when you throw your clothes and you fold them up quickly... That would not qualify for what's said in this Mishnah. Another hand mentions over here that they're talking about simply folding of the clothing. And that presents the problem, which is what we're choshish for, that we don't fold the clothing on Shabbat, even though it's not as significant as the pressing, possibly, that they were doing over here. So now the Gemara continues, it says, That's only if he has no alternative clothing to wear. If he has other alternative clothing to wear, we don't let him fold it up to preserve this clothing, because he just can wear something else. The house of Rabbi Gamliel would not fold up. He's the house of the Nasi. They would not fold up their white clothing. Because they had alternative clothing. So even though they were white clothing, and they were probably new, and they could have folded them on Shabbat. Nevertheless, they didn't, because they had alternative clothing. Therefore, there was no necessity to fold them on Shabbat. If he has a chance to change his clothing, he should change his clothing. If he doesn't have a chance to change his clothing, he should lower his clothing. It's a very, very interesting halacha. 
Salacha is referring to an Erev Shabbat, getting dressed for Shabbat. So the best thing to do, and what the Halacha states, is that one should change their weekday clothing into their Shabbat clothing. And that's what Rav Huna says. If you have what to change into for Shabbat, definitely should change into them for Shabbat. On the other hand, if you don't have what to change into, you should lower your clothing. You should make your clothing longer. Look at Rashi. It's very interesting. In Rashi, shall shall be gadav, klape mata, shiru arukim. So they should be longer. Vehum midat ashirim. That is the way of the rich, of the wealthy. The rich walk out with long clothing because they don't have to take them off the ground because of the work they're doing. When you're engaged in work, if your clothing is too long, it's going to get caught on what you're working in. It's going to get dirty. The sign of being rich or wealthy was that you had long clothing because you didn't have to worry about work. You don't have to worry about work. You don't have to worry about rolling up your tunic. You don't have to worry about rolling up your sleeves. Along with the long sleeves and the long tunic is the one not doing any work. He's the ashir, the rich person. So because of that, what Ravuna is suggesting is that even if a person has nothing to change into, he should not wear his clothing the way he would wear it on a weekday. On a weekday, you would normally wear it rolled up or pulled back so that it doesn't get ruined. On Shabbat, you should act like an ashir. You should act like a wealthy person and lower the clothing down. Looks like a certain amount of haughtiness that he's walking around like a rich person. Is that proper? Since he doesn't do it on any day. Since you're only doing it on Shabbat, it's not an indication of haughtiness. It's clear that he's doing it before the Shabbat. He's doing it to indicate that this day is special, not because he is special. And therefore, it's permitted to do this or act this way. It's interesting. It's very similar to what we say by Pesach. That by Pesach, even the Anish of Israel acts like an Ashir because of the Cherut and the Yitziah the Mitzrayim. Over here, you have a similar idea by Shabbat that every person has to act like a quote-unquote wealthy person on Shabbat. That Shabbat has a unique property to it where you cannot conduct yourself like you conduct yourself on a weekday. We have two Tosafot over here that are important. One of them is what Fred mentioned before, which is, he says, Mikaplim Kelim. One cannot, when about the folding of clothing, over there Tosafot says, Mikan, Tamanu, Dasur, Kapel, Talitot, Shobeta, Knesset. From here you learn that you may not fold up the Talit that is found in the Shul. Vishayim, Sarach, Machar. Because why are you folding up the Talit? You're not folding up the Talit to use it again on Shabbat. Folding up on Shabbat in order to use it after Shabbat. That's the case of preparing from Shabbat to Chol. What Tosafot mentions over here, the Gemara has also mentioned the same thing because of the idea if you have other clothing to use or with the making of the beds, which is that there are two problems in terms of folding the talit. There's a problem of folding the talit in the folding itself. And there's a second problem, which is that the folding of the talit, even if the folding is permissible, you have a secondary problem, which is that you might be preparing for chol. You might be preparing for a weekday. Now, if you have a unique or designated Shabbat talit, it might be less of an issue, because then when you're folding it, you're still folding it for Shabbat, even though it's next Shabbat. Maybe over there you could be matir. On the other hand, the folding problem still exists. And that is folding it along the creases. Fold it along the creases, then you're maintaining the press of the talit. And by doing so, that could be problematic on Shabbat. The Mordechai mentions over here that there are some people who fold just a loose folding on Shabbat or against the creases in order that it should just be put away properly and nicely, but not because they are folding it to press it. Again, the problem of preparing for chol might be still exist in those situations. You have to be careful in these types of situations about what to do about the talit on Shabbat, about whether you can or cannot fold it. Again, even though we don't have the pressing that they have, in general, because of these Rishonim that seem to mention that any type of folding would be problematic, we're choshish for that and we don't fold in general. And the problem of leaving something, which is bibizayon, leaving the tally just strewn or thrown around. So because of that problem, some people fold it loosely or in a way that doesn't create the pressing that we're talking about over here, in order that it should just not be left to be bizayon. Again, if you can put it into your tally bag and it doesn't seem like it's bizayon, and then fold it after Shabbat, that is probably the best way to deal with it. The re over here also has a suffix as to whether if someone has clothing that they could change into for Shabbat, but that clothing is not as nice as the clothing that they're currently wearing, should a person change in order to have something new for Shabbat or different for Shabbat? Or should they remain in the clothing that is nicer? And the re leaves that as a suffix. 
Right now the Gemara brings the Pasuk that is found towards the end of Yishayahu. Pasuk that many people say before Kiddush on Yom HaShabbat. That is, it says, V'chibato Masot Derachecha. That is Yom HaShabbat. You should be Chibabto. You should honor it. Masot Derachecha. From your normal ways. V'chibato. What do we learn from the word Chibato? That what you wear on Shabbat should be different than what you wear on a weekday. You should have special clothing for Shabbat. It should look different on Shabbat. People should know it's Shabbat because of what you are wearing. That's a problem with changing on Shabbat after one has left shul, after one's had the meal on Shabbat, into sports clothing, into shorts, to other types of wear that is not unique to Shabbat or special for Shabbat. The problem is that here, the Gemara learns from the Navi that one has to have clothing that identifies it as Shabbat for them because they are wearing Shabbat clothing. And now this is the honor of Shabbat, mistake that's made by many, that the Kavod of Shabbat is not when other people see you necessarily. Kavod of Shabbat is for the Shabbat itself. A person who wears something special to go to shul and comes home and then changes into the shlaki clothing afterwards, they're not wearing that clothing in the Kavod of Shabbat. They're wearing the Kavod themselves when they go see other people. So the important thing is that a person is consistent through the Shabbat, that they wear clothing that is Vodha Shabbat, and clearly identifiable as Malbusha Shabbat. Alright, Vikiyad the Rabbi Yochanan, this is similar to Rabbi Yochanan, said, Karidamane Mechabdotai. He called his clothing that which honors me. The trappings of the individual give kavod to the individual. The way the person's dress presents a certain image of the individual. And therefore, it's important that what clothing that you wear on Shabbat does have impact. It's not just how you feel, it's how you present yourself, and the clothing is a way to present oneself. Masod derachecha, it's again part of these pasuk in Yishayahu, that you shouldn't do your way. Shalom yehuluchach shel Shabbat, kiluchach shel chol. The way you walk on Shabbat should not be the way that you walk on a weekday. Again, the Gemara will discuss this in one second. Mimto chaktzecha. You may not deal with your own possessions, your own issues on Shabbat. But to deal with issues of heaven, that you can do. As Rashi points out, the Gemara will deal with this later on. Are things like, you can have people commit to give money, either for pijon shvuim, for certain things that are needed for the tzibur, or you can set up shiduchim on Shabbat, even though that might involve some monetary matters. These are things that are done for mitzvah. Things that are done for mitzvah are permitted on Shabbat. Chafatzecha. Your own, quote-unquote, business needs. Those needs cannot be discussed on Shabbat. They cannot be dealt with on Shabbat. V'daber davar. The way you speak on Shabbat should not be the way that you speak on chol. Rashi points out, what does that mean? Begon mekkach umemkar vecheshbonot. Can't talk about business counting. You can't talk about the monetary matters on Shabbat. On Shabbat, you're, the way you speak should be different. You shouldn't be thinking about the weekday activities. You're not thinking. You shouldn't be speaking about those weekday activities. Tosafot, on the other hand, says that's already captured in the previous statement of Chavatzecha. Can't deal with your Chavatzim on Shabbat, only Chavzei Shemayim. Your Chavatzim are Chavzei of business. So that's already dressed. So what is this? What is this talking about? When Amazing Tosafot. He brings down what Rashi says. He says, rather brings an example from Shimba Yochai, who had an elderly grandmother who used to uh, speak a lot. She was a loquacious woman. And then he turned to her when it was Shabbat. And he said, it's Shabbat. And then she stopped. Mashma, he says from that, Christians should be a little quieter on Shabbat than they are on a weekday. They should speak less. Christians should be more reserved in their speech on Shabbat instead of, Yushalmi, it says, there's a number of things listed earlier we saw in the Babli with regards to are you allowed to visit Cholim on Shabbat? Are you allowed to be Menachem of Elim on Shabbat? And there the Gemara says, according to Beit Hillel, the Koshi Etiru. They didn't want to allow these things on Shabbat because it takes away from the Shabbat to visit the sick and to visit the Avelim or Menachem of Elim. But they were Koshi Etiru. So here the Shalmi also adds to that the Koshi Etiru Shalat Shalom. The Koshi Etiru let people to greet each other on Shabbat because the tenor of a person on Shabbat should be quieter and less outgoing or rambunctious. And therefore, Tosfot says here, which is an amazing thing, the person has to be quieter, more reserved on Shabbat. Now, the Gemara says, Dibur Asur, Hirur Mutar. The Gemara is medayek here, that you're not allowed to speak about these items, but you are allowed to think about these items. Again, that works better a little bit for Rashi. Rashi says that, it's talking about Mecca, Chumem, you can't speak about them, you can't articulate that which is going on in your mind, but if it's rolling around in your head, 
then that is considered to be mutar. Right, so that is, mi'ikar din it's mutar. There are many that are makpid. We know that we have stories in the Gemara that even if they thought about something on Shabbat, they would not perform that avodah, they would not do it after Shabbat because they felt bad about it, they felt that it was wrong that they had thought about, say they needed to move this fence here, they needed to water this field. Even though they thought about it on Shabbat, they would refrain from doing it immediately because they felt it was not the right thing to be thinking about on Shabbat. But again, if someone's crossing through their yard, they notice that they need some watering and they notice that they need some grass over here. So that's not a sword to see or to notice those things. It's a sword to speak about those things. Right? That has implications. Again, the way that we speak to each other on Shabbat. Number one, ask people about pricing of objects on Shabbat is a sword. Because that is exactly this problem of engaging in things where talking about business. Person, technically, a person can speak about what happened in the past. I mean, what they did pay or what happened in the past, as long as it's not have implications in terms of the future and what the person's going to pay. That's number one. Number two is that when you speak about things on Shabbat, they should not involve things that you may not do on Shabbat. If you ask a person, when are you flying? Da-da-da-da-da. That's problematic because you're not supposed to speak about those items on Shabbat because those are activities that are asurim on Shabbat. If you just ask a person, when are you going home? and the person's here visiting from America, that's fine. That question does not relate to the malacha. So they can say, oh, I'm leaving, I'm going home on Tuesday. That's not a problem because you didn't talk about anything. But if you say, when are you flying home? Right, that could be problematic because then they're speaking specifically about doing something that would be otherwise a surah on Shabbat. So the person has to be careful in their speech on Shabbat, number one, about the content of the speech, but also not speaking about things that relate to after Shabbat. Again, preparing or engaging in discussions that involved post-Shabbat, or activities that are post-Shabbat, especially things that are asurim. All right, the Mara says, Bishlama kulu I understand all of these items that you brought, or dashin from the posuk in Yishayo. But that one thing that you said you can't walk on Shabbat, like you walk on Chol, Mahi, what's that? So some say that it was Ravuna Marav, and others say that it was Abba in the name of Ravuna. Comes to a water channel. If you can traverse the water channel by extending your foot and having the foot land on the other side before you release it from this side, mutar. If not, it's a sewer. So what do you want him to do? Lake it. He says, walk around the water channel. Says, then you're walking extra. You're doing extra tirchah on Shabbat. Where it says, let him go through the water. Walk in the water. Instead of skipping over, jumping over to the channel, walk through the channel. It says, the possibility that his clothing will become soaked they'll become soaked with water. And then he's going to come and squeeze his clothing out to remove the water from his clothing. If you have no alternative, then you're allowed to jump across the water channel. But if you have the opportunity not to jump across and you can stand your feet, you should do that instead of jumping. But rather, what we're speaking about here with regards to Shabbat is this issue. Is one allowed to take a long stride on Shabbat? Rashi over here defines Psiya Gasa as a stride that is more than one Amah. Psiya Benuniti says a normal stride is one Amah. Can we discuss this? Certainly Masechta. People have shitot in the Amah between 18 inches and 24 inches. But we narrowed it down that the most likely area is probably between like 18 and a half and 21 in terms of the most likely area of where the Amah is. So in terms of a stride, a person shouldn't take a long stride. A person shouldn't be running, taking these long strides. So you have a shortened stride on Shabbat or a normal stride. You do that even on a weekday? I say that whenever you take these long strides, you're running, you're skipping, that is problematic even on a weekday because it reduces your eyesight by one five hundredth every time you do this. And if you want to rectify the diminishment in one's eyesight from this type of walking or running, then it comes back on the Kiddush, from making Kiddush on Friday night. When you make Kiddush on Friday night, Rashi says, One who participates or drinks the wine on Friday night 
gets this benefit. So here you have a good reason to participate or drink in the wine from Friday night because it helps one's eyesight to restore their eyesight from that which is diminished from the B'siyah Can one eat dirt on Shabbat? Who says you can eat dirt even on a weekday? I say that you can't even eat it on a weekday. It causes problems. It sickens you. It is dangerous for your body to eat the dirt. So people thought maybe they're eating the dirt for some additional reason. Shemal Reyosa says, I, I think that you can't even eat it on a weekday because it's deleterious for your body. Anybody eats from the dirt of Bavel, it's as if he's eating from the flesh of his forethars. It's as if you're eating these disgusting, creepy, crawly things. It's as in Pashat Noach with regards to the Mabu that it melted, it destroyed everything that was alive. Why is Bavel also known as Shinar? The idea being that they felt that Bavel was in a valley. It was in a low area, a low-lying area, and therefore everything from the Mabul washed to the lowest area. And that's why they believed that that plain was fertile. Why the soil in Bavel was so fertile was because of the Mabul. As well as the fact that the Meite Mabul were all brought there. So if you're eating from the Afar, you're eating from the People who were buried there. People who ended up over there. Why is it called the Mitzulah? Called Mitzulah, which is like the depths, or a valley of sorts, because that's where all those that died in the Mabul end up rolling to or coming to. It's as if he's eating these creepy called things. Where it says, But those things were definitely wiped out, completely dissolved. There's nothing residual, there's nothing left of them. They were completely dissolved in the Mabul. So why should it be a problem in terms of them? Since the dirt or the dust of the earth that you eat is deleterious for your body, the Rabbanim would go there that you shouldn't eat it, and they made it as if you ate these shkatsim or masim in order to indicate to you that they don't want you to eat it. Ha'u gavra, there was this individual, da'achal gargishta. He ate a, Rashi says a gargishta is some sort of clod of clay of dirt. Ba'chal tachle. And then afterwards he ate crest. Ga'tachle belibe. And the crest then punctured his heart to meat and he died. Rashi says that he ate the dirt, then he ate the crest, and the crest took root in his stomach with the dirt and the crest together, and then it grew and it punctured his heart to meat, and he died from this. So now the Gemara is going to have a long drasha here with regards to what transpires in Megillat Root. It says, Barachatz, Pesachat, Pesam, Naomi is giving instructions to Root. Tell her, you should wash yourself. You should anoint yourself and then put your clothing on. I'm Rabbi Allah, Shabbat. These are the clothing of Shabbat. Of course, she's not walking around naked, but she has to say to her, put clothing on. She's saying to her, put on your clothing, it's because she's indicating her to put on something besides what she's wearing now. Rabbi says, those were the begadim of Shabbat. Ten lechacham If you give something to a wise person, they will do even better with it. They'll be even wiser. Rabbi zu ruta ramati. These two people exhibited that type of understanding. Rut, ilu na'ami Na'ami tells Rut to do all these items. And then she says, and then go down to the threshing floor. When she actually executed on it, it says, She goes down to the threshing floor. And then she did everything that her mother-in-law said. Because if she had gotten dressed and done all this before, made herself up and gone down, and then gone down to the threshing floor, she would have gotten dirty on her way there or on her attempt to enter into the threshing area. Rashi also mentions that if she was dressed up beforehand and going down to the threshing floor on a night time, that she would look like a zona. So instead, what she did was she took the clothing with her, and then she washed herself, cleaned herself up, and put the clothing on there so she would have her clothing be in good shape, and she would present herself in a beautiful way, or the way that Rashi learned, she didn't want to look like a zona, so she did it in a Sanua way, but she only got dressed when she reached the threshing floor. So she did it not exactly like her mother aunt said, but she understood that it meant to get there and then put on the clothing rather than first clean yourself up and then go with your clothing on. Shmuel, what's the case with Shmuel? Deilu. Eli Kamarle. Eli says to him, there was a number of times Shmuel here is somebody calling him. So Shmuel keeps getting up and going to Eli and saying, did you call me? And Eli says no. After a couple of times, Eli realizes that what's happening here, that Shmuel's getting a nevuah and 
It's not Eli who's calling him. So he says to him, go back. Shav, vayayin, imikra alecha. Says, go back, lay down. And if you hear the voice again, vamarta, daber, Hashem. He says, speak Hashem, kishomei avdecha. Because your servant is listening. V'ilu b'didekti, when Shmuel himself heard the voice again, he says, vayavo, Hashem, vayit yatsev. Hashem came again. Vayikra, kafam, bafam. He called again like he had done the last couple of times. Shmuel, Shmuel. Vayomer Shmuel. Shmuel responds to him, daber, kishomei avdecha. Speak. Because your servant is hearing, or is listening. He doesn't say, speak Hashem. He doesn't use Hashem's name, because he's not sure. Eli told him to use Hashem's name. Shmuel didn't know whether it was Hashem or not. So therefore, in order to protect himself, not use the shame Hashem in vain, he just says, speak, and to engage in the conversation until he knows that it's Hashem speaking. Continue with Megillat Ruth. She came, she went, and she collected in the field. Amar of Elazar shalcha uvat, halcha uvat, adshe matza b'nei adam hamuganim lelechimahem. What it means to go, come and go wasn't within the field, but rather from field to field. She went from field to field until she found a place where there were people who acted appropriately and people who were of upstanding character, and that's where she began to collect, because she didn't want to be amongst people that were not acting appropriately. Boaz says to his young man who is in charge of all the harvesters, the me and Who's this young girl over here? What is Boaz asking about young ladies that are out in his fields? He saw something unusual about this woman. The other girl says, saw something that she knew. Why? What did she see? She there were two stalks that fell. She would pick them up. She did not pick them up, which is the din of leket. When more than two fall, then that's not considered to be something that is dropped. That's something that is too much. It's only when two fall, not when three fall. So she knew that Allah. He saw her being acting in a way that indicated her tzniyut. When she picked those things that were upright, she would stand up and pick them. Things that were on the ground, instead of bending over to pick them up, she used to drop herself straight down in order that her skirt would come down. You've seen this with the women who act in this manner, where it's a new one. Instead of bending over to do something, they lower themselves straight down under their skirt in order to pick the item up. So this was an unusual tzniyut that he saw in her. So then he says, You should stick around with my young maidens. That's what Boaz says to Ruth. It was it, Boaz's way to be hanging out. Or to speak with women, or to be hanging around with women, that he says to her, oh, go hang out with my young maidens. Since he saw about her, that Orpah kisses her mother-in-law Naomi and goes home, Ruth stuck with her. He says, if she stuck with Naomi, and she did this act of incredible chesed, that she's the type of woman that you can hang out with, woman that you can engage with, because she's a very special woman. Boaz says to her at the time that they're eating, Go shalom, come here, come, you should participate with the eating. He hinted to her, That the machut, the kingdom of David, will come out of you, you will be the progenitor of the Davidic line. Over here it uses the word halom, and by David it uses the word halom. David comes and he sits before Hashem. And who am I that you have brought me until here? Who is my household? Who am I that you brought me? The play on the word halom says that she, who Boaz spoke to her about halom, produced the Davidic line who says to Hashem, who am I that you brought me to this point? It says, you should join in here and dip your bread into the vinegar. Those who that chometz vinegar is good in a dry time in the summertime. Because that's when they were doing the tzira, that's when they're doing the harvesting. He gave her a hint. That a child will issue from you. Whose actions are as difficult as vinegar. Who's that? One of the kings of Beit Yehuda, who was horrible. The son of Chizkiyahu HaMelech, who was a tremendous king of Beit Yehuda. He had a son, Menashe, who went off the derech. Vateshev mitzada kutsrim. He sat next to, adjacent to the kutsrim. Amaraz mitzada kutsrim, velo betocha kutsrim. She sat adjacent to them, not amongst them. Remez Ramazla shatida machu beidavit shatit That was a hint that in the future, 
that the Malchut Beit David would be divided. She didn't sit with Boaz, she didn't sit with the Kotsrim, she sat on her own to show that Malchut Beit David would split with the Malchut Yisrael. They gave her, they gathered for her the roasted kernels, and she ate. The puzzle continues. The Gemara doesn't quote the remainder of the puzzle, which is, that she ate, she was satisfied, and there was left over. Then when they ate, when they were eating, was in the time of David. Tizba, when were they satisfied? Bimei Shlomo. Vatotar, when did they have excess? Bimei Chizkiah. So they're picking the highlights of the Davidic line of David, Shlomo, and Chizkiah. Vigidamrei, some say, Vatochal, Bimei David, Bimei Shlomo. When did they eat? They ate in the time of David and Shlomo. Vatizba, when did they have satisfaction? That was the time of Chizkiah. Vatotar, when did they have excess? Bimei Rabbi. Talking about Rabbi, who we know was a Nasi in Eretz Yisrael, part of the Davidic line. The stable keeper of Rabbi, was richer than Shwarmalko, who was a Persian king. And his stable keeper was more wealthy than the king of Persia. So that was the type of wealth that we're talking about with the Rabbi. But midi katano, in a bright that we have, v'tochal balamazeh. She ate, or you eat in this world, v'tizba limot ha-mashiach, so you satisfied in limot ha-mashiach, v'totar, v'tidavo, and be left over for v'tidavo. Not going to get into this, but this is an indication, going to those Rishonim, that there's a difference between olam haba and yimot ha-mashiach. Because over here it seems the Gemara separates between the two. Right, so now the Gemara over here quotes a pasuf from Mishayahu, nothing to do with what we had in the previous Gemaras, which is Takavodo, Yekad, Yekod, Kikodesh. They're quoting it over here because there's a machloket, how to explain the puzzle between Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Lazar, and Shmuel Bar Nachman. These are people who appeared in the previous Gemaras discussing about the Psukim that we are quoting, different interpretations of those Psukim. So since it involves the same individuals discussing a Pasuk, the Gemara brought it over here as well. That is, Takad Kivodo, under his honor, Yekad, Yekod, there will be a pyre or fire, kikodesh, like that of a fire. Now the question is, what does it mean, tachat kvodo? So I'm Rabbi Yochanan, tachat kvodo, v'lo kvodo mashmash. Means, instead of his kvod, but not really his kvod. Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan is the shitato, Rabbi Yochanan karar lamanei machbudotai. So again, similar to what we saw from Yochanan in the end of the previous Amud, which is that, Rabbi Yochanan used to call his clothing machbudotai, that which honors me. Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan, means the person themselves. Shmo bar nachmani amar, tachat vodo, kisrifat ne'aron. Like the burning up of ne'aron, malalan srifat nishama v'guf gayam. Over there, the fire entered and killed them instantaneously, but left their bodies intact. Afghan srifat nishama v'guf gayam. Also over here, the death that was going to come from Hashem was going to be that they would be killed, but their bodies would be intact. Rashi explains what the Gemara means. First of all, the Nevu'ah of Ishayah is talking about the troops of Sancheriv that are laying siege to Yerushalayim, and that Hashem is going to intercede and destroy those troops of the army of Sancheriv. So there it says, With some sort of fire that's going to come, and devour the army of Sancheriv. And then, as Rashi explains, Vechachi Perusha. Ben Rabbi Yochanan, Ben Rabbi Lazar, whether it's Rabbi Yochanan or Rabbi Lazar, Rufan Nisraf. Their bodies were consumed. Ella, Rabbi Yochanan Mashmalei, Tachat Kvodo, is Kamo Tachat Raglav. What does it mean underneath you? It means under your feet. Lashon Tachtit, below. And what's Kvodo? Kvono Haido Bigadav, is his clothing. Vachi Kamar, Tachat Bigdehem, Shel Chayotav, Shel Sancheriv. Under the clothing of the army, the soldiers of Sancheriv, Yekad Yukod, there will be a fire. Velo big dam nisrifu, but their clothing did not get destroyed. Tachat vodo means underneath the clothing, the fire will consume from underneath and leave their clothing intact. It will eat up their body, consume their body, but leave the clothing intact. Belazar mashmalai tachat lashon chalipin. Tachat doesn't mean under, but rather in place of, to replace. Kamal Yishalem Tachat Ashur. That's used in the Torah to mean to replace. So Mishum Dero Lazar Lo Kari Lamanei Machbudotai Lakach Korcha Kvodo Hainu Gufo. He doesn't think the word Kvod means clothing, so he means his poof, his body. Vehachigamar, and this is what he means. Kvodo Mamash, literally the body, which is that the body got burnt up, but again the clothing is intact. And then Mishum Bar Nachmani is. Tachat Kvodo reads the Tachat like Rabbi Yochanan. The Tachat means literally under. But he reads Kvodo like Rabbi Elazar. So he ends up saying that the fire came under their bodies, but left their bodies intact. What's under their bodies? It means inside of their bodies, like the Sreifa of Bnei Aaron. But that fire doesn't consume the body, it consumes the Neshama that's inside. According to Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Elazar, their bodies were destroyed. Just a question of what the meaning of Tachat and Kvodo is. 
According to Reb Shmuel Bar-Nachmani, their bodies were intact and they were burnt up from the inside. And this is when Hashem comes to save Yerushalayim in the time of Kitzkiyahu Melech, and he destroys the troops of Sancherev. How does he appear? Okay, we'll stop here.